Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 136, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, we're talking about the Trump administration's recent decision to roll back school lunch regulations on fruits and vegetables, and some Los Angeles teachers are suing Delta after jet fuel was dumped over the school's playgrounds. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're going to give you some tips to make sure that your students are writing in preparation of their future careers. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the person responsible for Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston reuniting, Principal Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am great. I've been working on that for a long time, and I saw stars and sparks. I think I was successful. That was all the talk this past weekend, wasn't it? Was. It? it was. It was hot. I loved it. I mean, are we... What, what, did they have a name? Like, you know how there was Brangelina? Was, was it Benifer, or was that... Maybe it was Benifer. I don't know. No, that was... Um, Affleck? That was, um, yeah, Affleck and Lopez. Jennifer. Oh, Irvin. it was, huh? Well, he had two Jennifers now, so I but, don't know. Uh, what, what was there? There's he went be... from one Jennifer to another. That's true. Garner to... Yeah. Lopez the Garner, huh? Yeah. I don't know who he's with now. I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I don't know what... I can't remember. I'm sure somebody's screaming. Brad is recognizing his great error. Yeah, he is. You know, kind of publicly. It's kind of... It's interesting watching that unfold. And I think we all kind of appreciate it when it's done publicly. I don't know why. I do appreciate it because I think she was extremely crushed um, by how that, that all went down. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to see that one plays out. So good work on your part. How are things going this week? It, I know it's cold and you were saying oh, Carline. it is super cold. Carline bus duty is insane. Um, today I was thinking I really should have had hand and foot warmers um, going numb there. 25 degrees in the morning. I, I know we're in the, in the south, but I mean, 25, that's cold for it's, everywhere, right? It's I mean, really Minnesota, cold like, um, with the wind blowing and everything, and you're just outside, you right. know, waiting on buses to pull up. But at the same time, that's here for like, what, two days, and it'll be <laughs> right. 75 degrees. It's bipolar Yeah, we, we don't have it too bad. So now, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the teacher's lounge. What do you know? What's going on this week? Listen, oh my goodness. I am having a really hard time trying to process this this new issue that just recently just like hit the news waves. So last week, we find out that our Healthy Hunger School Act, where we are taking care of nutritious meals for children, Mm -hmm. has been rolled back, basically just unpeeling the layer of all the requirements for the extra fruits and vegetables. Um, And I'm telling you, I try to stay, uh, you know, in my lane on our podcast, but I got to come on out here and say, this is some foolery. And I am so tired of chasing things from the last Okay, so, so I'll play um, devil's advocate and I'll say, um, I think those that are for what's happening, they think um, this is just going to be easier for schools. Like they don't have to worry about bringing in apples and healthy items. Listen, I work in a high 
poverty school, most of my experience has been in high poverty areas. And for many children, the school breakfast, the school lunch are their best and warmest meals of the day. And while we might think, you know, oh, this is going to be easier on the producer, the manufacturers, those that are um, providing the, the, the options for the school districts to select from, because that's what this boils down to is they didn't really like the policies. They complained that it made it harder for them to provide um, appropriate items. But when you look at children who may not have health insurance, who may not get those expensive nutritional mm. items, they're getting it every day at school. And now what are we going to see? French fries and pizza every single day? Yeah. And back like when we were in school? I think a lot of people, if you if you happen and you know who you are, or maybe you don't know if you're this person, if you grow up in a bubble, you, you may live in a bubble where you think you have access, you can go pick up anything and, and healthy foods everywhere. There are areas, certainly down here in the South and rural areas where you can't find a grocery store and all you can find is fast food and gas station food. Really, sometimes just gas Listen, station food. Listen, I saw a very clever tweet yesterday that said, for those of you who was you were raised and you come from a poor, high poverty background, what is the one thing that you have right now at your fingertips every single day that you didn't have as a poor child? Mm-hmm. And I, I responded and I said, Many options in the pantry and the refrigerator, just options galore daily. And and a lot of these kids don't have that. So my child has no idea the struggle. Um, And so I also think about those children that we're serving every day in these schools and the options we provide for them. I mean, honestly, you watch some children, they don't leave anything on their tray while there are others, especially when they become teenagers, they're much more opinionated about what items they like. Um, But our small babies who don't have um, the inclination to choose or not, you know, it's important. Have you, out of anyone in your education community, heard anybody complain about the transition that we had to healthier lunches over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years? Maybe the only thing that I have heard, and that's because I'm going to be um, completely honest always on our show, uh, uh, some of the items turned where it had to be whole grain. Mm-hmm. For instance, all of the breads are, are whole grain. And so, you know, when it comes to carbs, you want that flour, you right. want that, you know, all of the white items that uh, make us real fat around the middle. And so that that addition of whole grain and then even the potato chips, which are, um, you know, less fatty, more grain grains in them, but they're still just as tasty. But have you heard anyone complain about the execution of it? Like we're having trouble finding whole grain bread, you know? No. And so that brings me to my next question. And I don't recall hearing our child nutrition director um, complain. And I I really believe that I was in a different school district than I'm in now um, when it really, you know, unfolded and changed. And so if it wasn't broken, why are we fixing it? Why is this happening? Um, This is really a political issue. And and like I said, I'm skirting around it, don't want to go there. But um, because we could we need a whole other podcast for this. Let me let me read to you what Dan Rather said, a former. Yeah, what a good old Dan say. CBS News. He said, so the Trump administration wants to make school lunches less healthy. It's almost like a concerted effort to take on the persona of a comic book villain. And like, wow, he says that jokingly, but it almost does seem like something you would see in a comic book. Like, let's make lunch unhealthy. But why are we working on making lunch unhealthy and we have major issues going on right let's focus on that right and and in all honesty like how this works is this is one department that's changing the regulation right. so this isn't necessarily trump's and it didn't office. just happen it, it, it you know. probably was on the agenda a year or two ago but it, i think there is a an effort and there's been an effort to dismantle 
anything that the previous administration had done. And I agree. this was one of those things. It was one of those things that was very public. It was done by the first lady. And, and I get and, that, you know, I completely get that. I, I don't want any part of politics. But as an educator and as a mom, I'm I'm just kind of concerned about, hey, yeah. less fruits and less vegetable options for children. That's the way to go. What? I, I mean, I I've had I have three kids and and I let the first one I was younger when I had the first one and I kind of let him eat what he wanted. And and I kind of thought, you know, with the second one, let me try to push the fruits and vegetables on him early. And while it was, there were some growing pains there. Like he eats healthier now as a result. It's not that hard. And so I just feel like, I mean, here the schools are actually helping parents by teaching them that there's healthier right. things. I mean, That's where maybe right. you don't get it at home, they might find that they like a piece of lettuce or they like a carrot or or something like that. And so. it's funny that you said that because I literally just had this conversation with my son about a week ago um, explaining to him easy ways to get vegetables in there. I said, son, you love hamburgers. Put some lettuce and tomatoes on there. Yeah. Just spruce up mm-hmm. your burger. You know, you actually will get fuller right. if you add some veggies to your burger. Same thing with his tacos. He just wants meat and cheese. Right. And I say, hey, buddy, I'm adding some, some lettuce on here, maybe even a little avocado. Come on, go with me. Yep. I mean, it, it is. Um, I, I think they, they'll learn a lot just by having access to it or being in front of them or all they have mm-hmm. access to. So I, I feel like, I don't but know. But what this, about those this... children who don't have those options at home? Exactly. That, that their cabinets and their refrigerators not overflowing or even just, you know, minimally full. That, that is some very uh, true perspective there. And I appreciate you uh, pointing that out because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think that way. I mean, like I said, if you happen to live in a bubble, you, that may not even cross your mind as a, as a thing. Like this is it for those kids. We have to get out of our bubble because at any given day, 15 minutes from where you live, someone's living in high poverty. Right. It, yeah. it's, this is the truth. Um, did you see this story out of um, Los Angeles with the airplane? Did no. You, did you miss this one? I like, missed it. I, I didn't see it a whole lot and it sounds awful. So there was an airplane that took off from Los Angeles for China and apparently needed to make an emergency yes. landing and it had to turn around. I so you did, did see. Oh my goodness. So, so it yes. turns around and it, I didn't know this about airliners, but when you have a, a really heavy load, you can take off, but you can't necessarily land with that much weight. And I'm sure this is a large airplane flying to China and it was full of a lot of fuel. They had to dump fuel and they dumped it on a school playground. Uh, terrible decision. I wonder if they j- just didn't pay attention to what was below because I don't think that they would intentionally try to hurt children. But a lot of children um, were affected, a lot of scare- skin in- irritation. Um, parents were, you know, a little freaked out. And it makes you wonder, did they follow protocol? Because in, in the protocol, should you check the geographical area yes, you that should. you're flying over? Yes, and you so should. if that is definitely at the top of the protocol, what happened here? So, um, again, this was Delta Airlines and over a Los Angeles school, and it was about 17 miles from the Come airport. on, Delta Airlines. You just got out of the news. Four <laughs> teachers are now going to be represented by um, the infamous Gloria Allred. Wow. Um, and they're filing suit against Delta. And, and they so, should. And here's some more details behind it that I didn't realize. So the fuel was dumped at 2,000 feet, which is low. Like, my drone can easily so go So why were they feet. flying? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is so that is really low. And so apparently what they've disclosed from air traffic control conversation was they needed to make an emergency landing, right? And you want to get these people How down How long the were they safely. in the air? Uh, I don't know. They, they were, like I said, about 17 miles from the airport. So How did you not, not know that before you took off? Uh, well, I mean, stuff happens. You could hit birds. I, I don't know the specific situation, you know, here. Um, okay, I thought you were saying their weight 
oh, limit no, was well, an issue. Well, no, that wasn't why they were landing. They needed to land, and they had to lower the weight on the plane. In so they order. had to do the fuel dump to, to swing back around. Because and if they traveled their Angeles. entire distance, they would they have burned, burned the off. fuel. Exactly. Gotcha. So, um, so they had to do this dump. But apparently, air traffic control asked the pilots when they said they need to make a, a landing, do you need to do a fuel dump? And they said negative, negative, apparently like multiple times. And then at 2,000 feet, they end up dumping the fuel. And as a result, uh, according to the lawsuit, and we know sometimes these things are going to be, I don't want to say overdramatic, but I mean, this is what the suit says, that it caused the women to feel dizzy, nauseated, sick. Children were crying. They were ingesting toxins. Um, I'm I mean, literally, though, imagine, think about how how much fun it is when you're on the playground mm-hmm. or if you're having PE class outside and you're totally loving the environment today and you've got your face up. Think about when we were young and we would look up at the sky and right. and then something suddenly starts dropping and it takes you a minute to figure out if they it's thought rain. it was raining. That's what they thought. Well, a child could have ingested it. It, it. And it's quite possibly they did. And it can cause liver damage, according to the lawsuit. So like this is a... A big deal. Eyes. Kind of what what impact could it have on their eyes? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I just don't see. It's like you want the plane to land safely, and they probably needed to dump the fuel. But even if they would have dumped it at, let's just say, fifteen thousand feet, rather than I, I don't. I really want people to realize how low two thousand feet is. Like that is not high. It's not. And so, um, quite the issue. I'm curious to see how this plays out. Plays out. I think we're we're just going to see a. A Not only that, just the plane settled. hovering over school that low also is. You yeah, know. but I think that's probably typical if you're coming back in, mm-hmm. you know, for that landing. It might but be it causes them path. to look up. Right. Is my point. Yeah, this is true. This is true. So, um, you know, it it was done for the safety of those on the plane, but as a result, over a school, and like you said, you know. At 2,000 feet, you can see that you're about to drop this fuel on at least buildings. You may not say, there's a school, I'm going to hit a school, but you know that you could have some sort of I think it's impact. ridiculous and they didn't follow protocol. Absolutely. But uh, anyhow, so I just had to share that one with you. It, it shocked me when I read it, and I feel like we should have heard more, more about that story. Um, are you ready for the uh, Brown Idea? I am ready. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us some tips on how you can make sure your students are writing for the right reasons. Jill Pavich is a national board certified teacher who spent 12 years in the classroom before breaking away to create Ed Pioneer. Ed Pioneer offers resources for making writing more real and authentic for students. Jill, welcome to Class Dismissed. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we really appreciate you uh, jumping on with us. And and when you say, um, you know, you're kind of on this mission to make writing real, what do you mean? How is writing not real right now for students? Um, well, I guess if I can kind of just tell a little bit of my story and how I came to this realization, um, you know, after teaching for 12 years in the classroom, I made this decision to leave because in the days leading up to that decision, I was teaching at a school that was ranked by Washington Post as one of the top 25 most challenging schools in the nation. And this is in large part because of how many standardized exams we were pumping out. And I had tremendous passing rates um, for my very young learner- learners who were taking these big you know, college-bound courses. And I was leading up teams of teachers. My, my principal gave me a lot of leadership on the campus. But the realization had kind of trickled down to this. I was teaching writing and research, and I could have taught it until I was blue in the face, but it didn't really necessarily mean that my students were going to apply these principles beyond these paper and pencil exams that we were prepping for. And, you know, they would write college essays or they would go on to take intro to comp classes, but it didn't mean that all of that hard work was necessarily going to do anything beyond that. So I couldn't help but envision my students walking out into the real world and not 
maybe not having the proper communication skills to actually share their perspective with the world, to you know, uh, raise money for a cause with a fundraising page or use their language to write killer sales copy for their own company, let alone somebody else's. So that's when it kind of hit me that you know our students are always writing in my classroom, but not necessarily for the right reason. But you're saying so like even to your best students in your class, those that were, you know, acing the exam and and seemed like they were retaining the information that was being taught to them still really weren't prepared in real life scenarios. No, um, I went back and I kind of like as I was going on this journey, I spoke to several of my students um, and one of my students, Lindsay, I did an interview of her and we were on the video call and I asked her about the connection or the disconnect for that matter between what she learned under my care as a star student, a star writer, what she did you know, beyond in college and then what she was doing now in the real world. And she said that a lot of that writing, it gave her kind of the just in case knowledge, but it wasn't giving her any applications. She said in her own words that jobs want you to be able to start producing like now. And she essentially, as an online entrepreneur in the marketing space, she had to reteach herself what it meant to write for slide decks and what it meant to write scripts for videos or to write for blog posts or LinkedIn posts or things like that that she was doing for her clients. And I just really saw that no matter what I taught her, it wasn't connecting from what we did on the essay page to the kind of writing she's doing in a modern digital world. What what were the key disconnects there? I mean, what was the stylistic disconnects between what you were teaching in class and then, like you said, you know, for a blog post, uh, why could she not transition those two? Um, I think that, you know, the, the medium of the essay is so formal, the way that we teach it in high schools. And even though writing is this open, fluid thing, in reality, the rubrics we use um, and the expectations we have for how you write on an exam, that governs everything that we do. And so she was really stuck in a rigid box of writing that the intro body and conclusion had to look this way. But if you go on to something like Instagram and you're writing to capture an audience to attend an event, for instance, um, or you're persuading them to take on a different perspective, the language is very different. You know, even if you go on to like Huffington Post, they have these contests for student bloggers Mm -hmm. and they tell you if you look at the guidelines for what they deem acceptable for writing, they encourage the submissions to kind of break all the rules that we teach students to do. So colloquial language, like getting down on that conversational level, that's what a blog post wants. That's that's the the style and the framework. But in the in the, I guess, academic um, formal setting, we say, you know, stay away from any kind of colloquial or down to earth language. Well, and that's funny you say that because when I was um, looking at your website, Ed Pioneer, it's edpioneer.com, right? Yes. Um, I noticed that much of your language in your copy on that page is that way. You know, it's kind of fun. It it has a fast pace to it. And it's not necessarily done in the formal sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That was hard to it it took me a long time to find my voice, which was sad for me. I I kind of like mourned that stage because it was like I was a writer. Here I am. I, I am a writer. I'm a writing teacher. And I was terrified to really step into my own voice online. You know, so that was that was an interesting transition. And I guarantee it's one that our own students are having to make as they get out there and they're actually writing for, you know, their employers, people that are expecting them to take on that 
kind of brand voice. So so when you had that aha moment, for lack of a better term, with the student, were, were you still a teacher at the time? Were you still actively in the classroom? Um, no, I was, I had just left and I was kind of on this mission to figure it out. I stepped away from education, but not forever. I stepped away because I was like, I know that there's a better answer out there for our students when it comes to teaching them what are, you know, modern communication skills. And I was, I was really on the hunt to figure that out. And so it was my conversation with this student and then some posts I was seeing on LinkedIn from other former students that are millennials now in the professional world. And a lot of them were really saying the same thing. The sentiment was very similar that, you know, your alma mater can only carry you so far. Your employers want you to be able to do, to execute. Is that really what kind of gave you the direction with Ed Pioneer? You thought, I've got to find a way to teach teachers these skills, like how to bring this into the classroom. A hundred percent. Yeah. My, my last professional development meeting that I ever attended on campus, we had an agenda. It was in January and we had an agenda that had over 300 items on the agenda and they were all exam based. It was all test prep windows, blackout dates. And, you know, again, I had very young ninth grade learners that had a ton of weight, a ton of pressure sitting on them to perform well in order to get to the next step. So, you know, that was hard for me to see their stress level at that age. And I just, I really wanted to um, just find a way for teachers to empower teachers really to go beyond that core cognitive level that we teach them at, you know, to kind of step back and I guess Maslow before we bloom, right? You're, you're trying to really get to know the students and what they care about and then use that as the kind of fulcrum for writing and for communicating. And how is it received? I mean, when you talk to other teachers and in, in schools about saying, you know, we need to back off on the formalities of writing, um, do they push back a lot or are they receptive? I, I think that a lot of teachers genuinely believe in the message that I am sending. I think that we all came into this profession with a very clear goal. And that goal is we want to impact the lives of our students. We want to, you know, empower the trajectory of their futures. And it's there that that sentiment is there. But we get lost in the proverbial trees, which is more or less the, the pressures on us to perform as far as our pass rates go and, you know, standardized exam scores and things like that. So it's hard. It's teachers find themselves, the ones that I've spoken with, they find themselves in between wanting to make a genuine impact and pursue the interests and talents of their students. And then the other side is you have to get them to pass this exam or you have to get them to have a high pass rate or, or strong grades to get into college. What what does that look like for you in terms of these skills? I mean, is it do you recommend teaching the fundamentals first? And this is more of an advanced technique when you start talking about blogging and, you know, writing better for email or, or maybe even, you know, just workplace communications? I don't think so. I think that um, a lot of the times we see it as black or white. You know, you either do this or you do that. You teach the the traditional kind of foundational way, or you teach with some innovation behind you. And I just genuinely see the concept of make writing real being a marriage of those two. There's a a podcast I listen to, an educator, he's kind of like a project-based learning wizard. Um, His name is John Spencer. And he just wrote a book about vintage innovation that I think definitely speaks along these lines, where it's, you're, you're doing both. You can teach 
in innovative ways, but still hang on to your foundations that you're used to, like the foundational elements of an essay, those get built directly into some of these other more innovative updated projects. Like if you're writing a blog post or you're writing the script for a podcast or you are storyboarding a video, there is the there are those foundational elements that exist very clearly in each of those processes. And I think that we, you know, we see something like getting our students to podcast and we're afraid. We're like, no way that is that has nothing to do with writing because you're speaking into a microphone. But to me, that couldn't be further from the truth. The brainstorming process is there you know, the outlining process, getting feedback, iterating on your concept, um, and of course, clearly communicating it. I think that some of our struggling writers could do well from speaking their ideas before even getting down to the page. So it can be a tremendous scaffold. And I think that we get so lost with time and, and how much we have to do in a single school year that we forget to take that time um, to, to develop deeply on a project-based level. Um, I have to agree with you 100% there. And, and I don't try to share too many personal stories on the show. But I, I have a, a freshman in high school now. And um, he did a podcast when he was in middle school. And you know, he had his dad who knew how to produce a podcast. So I was able to kind of teach him. But by the end of you know, season two, or even by the time we started season two, he was writing his own show, like he was creating the format, he was creating the segments, he had to learn how to write a tease, um, as we were kind of going into the show. And I, I felt like that was such a great lesson for him to kind of see, you know, something that wasn't just an essay. And so uh, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there. Thank you. You created a digital course, I guess, over at edpioneer.com. I mean, that kind of works on on this topic of, of writing and making it real. I mean, what does that look like? <laughs> um, well, this is uh, something that's been on my heart for a long time. I was really trying to figure out what it is that, that I wanted to do. But Ultimately, it came down to, you know, we're, we're teaching a lot of writing. And I said to myself, well, we're teaching that writing. It, it's not always linking up with the way our students are actually going to communicate in the real world. So how can we bridge that gap? So the course, it's called Make Writing Real. It gives teachers and students a taste of what it's like to utilize writing skills in mediums beyond the status quo traditional essay. Because truth of the matter, when students go out into the real world, when they start to get those jobs, no employer ever is going to say, let me see your stack of essays, whether that's college essays or high school essays. They're going to say, what on your resume, what skills on your resume can you actually showcase for me? What can you do or what have you done that speaks to those skills? And so Make Writing Real is a means for getting students just really into the thick of it and doing the work, you know, learning through doing very John Dewey style and just kind of learning how to leverage their written communication skills in a way that translates into the real world. So I call it my rogue approach to teaching writing skills more authentically in the high school classroom. Did you have a moment where you were working with other teachers or other students where you felt like, all right, this is it. This is why I stepped out of the classroom. Uh, yeah, I, there was, if I can, I'm going to give you two. There was a testimonial because as I was building this course, I kind of beta tested it. I had a small cohort of like 12 to 15 teachers that were in there. And after each module that I created in real time, I said, hey, guys, tell me what you think. You know, we would get on Facebook Live or we would get into um, the comment section of the actual course. And they would talk to me just very straightforward about their thoughts. And there was a moment where uh, a lady, her name is Jen, she wrote that 
I was giving teachers the permission and the freedom to explore what they already instinctively know to be true as teachers. Right. And while also showing them how to kind of align creativity with the demands of the systems we're required to work in as teachers. And she said, you're what we've all been waiting for. And it was like in that moment where it finally validated all of my hopes and aims for this course, right? Yeah. And, and, the- and why is that? I mean, it's like you just said, like teachers know that this is these are the skills my students should be, should be learning, but you've been in the classroom. Like, why do teachers just not push ahead? Is it is it too rogue? I think so. I think that, you know, outright, it looks like I'm trying to take down Big Brother, maybe like I'm trying to overhaul a system overnight, you know, like, oh, we're doing all these, quote unquote, innovative things. Um, And I think on the surface level, it looks very different. But once you get into the course, and what a lot of teachers were recognizing was, wow, you know, these are points that I completely you know, resonate that, that resonate with me, but I just didn't look at it that way. So if I could give you like a concrete, um, if you look at narrative writing, for instance, it's one of our standards, common core standards for writing. And that's of the three, we've got narrative writing, we have informational writing, and we have persuasive or argumentative writing. And at the high school level, we focus largely on persuasive or argumentative writing, um, because that's, that's huge. You know, you definitely need to be able to leverage your opinion in society. That's, that's huge. I, I definitely don't discount that. However, if you look at any brand or you look at any nonprofit or business, things like uh, Virgin or Tom Shoes, um, Charity Water, mm-hmm. at the heart of those businesses or nonprofits that are most successful lies a story that people can empathize with or identify with. But at the high school level, those grades just before the real world, where we could be kind of incubating these like bright ideas, we teach everything but that narrative piece. So, you know, our students aren't learning how to tell the story of their ideas in order to genuinely connect with other people. And they don't get much practice at divergent thinking either in order to come up with these unique ideas, such as, again, Charity Water or Tom Shoes or something like that. And um, so I think that, you know, that that's kind of the, the thing that a lot of teachers are saying, wow, I never thought of it that way. I had a teacher that said in one of her testimonials that, you know, I never really considered the value of narrative writing beyond people that are pursuing a career as a book author. And so she said this really changed my mindset about how I place value on writing in, in my classroom. So I thought that was really, really eye-opening. Yeah, and, and I like Tom's shoes as an example. I've I've never, you know, had any reason to purchase a pair of Tom's shoes, but I know the story. At least I think I do. I, I think it had something to do with the <laughs> the founder. He was in another country and he saw that, you know, kids didn't have shoes and he wanted to make maybe like a, you know, a low-cost shoe. And then I think that ties to when you buy a shoe, it goes to, to another country. Am I, am I somewhat right there, right? And yeah, I, I, yeah. The same with uh, Lyft, the the origins of Lyft. You had a the, the founder was in Zimbabwe, and he was looking at the way people, you know, share rides in Zimbabwe versus in New York City, and it was just like quite the opposite. So Lyft was born, you know. But it's right. like divergent thinking and creative out of the box stuff. Well, and then it, it's very effective in terms of marketing because, like I said, I, I somehow know that story, and I've never <laughs> never purchased a pair. Now, you you said there was another moment I think um, that kind of stuck out to you. Yeah, um, just as far as like seeing my students, my former students uh, on social media, you know, I, I genuinely believe I was put on this earth to connect with students. I think my own upbringing, my own hard knocks, I can bring a lot of that to relate to teenagers. When people 
here that I teach teenagers and that I love it. They're like, what are you crazy? But, um, you know, I always thought I knew my students so well. And I got onto social media as I was creating this and started kind of following some of my students, which is, you know, huge taboo when you're in the classroom to be friends with your students. But what I was seeing, I had a student, Zachary, who he actually, we're in Florida, but he grew up in the same county as I did up north. So I just had this loving motherly affinity for him already. But I saw him on social media and he was playing his guitar and singing this beautiful like love song, which he was like my class clown crazy boy. And I, it was just a whole new shade of him. And I said, this is why I'm doing this course, because not enough kids know their students in this way. They don't know what really matters to them, what they are really talented in, what they're passionate about. And that's all of the content that we can be leveraging to teach the standards and the skills that our students need. And so that was another big aha moment for me that this is this is now this is the moment this is what we need to be focusing on more in the classroom and empowering teachers to kind of stand behind that is a very good point jill um now the uh, website again is edpioneer.com and if somebody wants to keep up with you like on social media is there a place you prefer to hang out do you like to interact on uh yes so i am on instagram at it's at Jill, J-I-L-L underscore Ed Pioneer. Okay. And that's like my, my big place. I'm also on Twitter at E-D-U Pavich, P-A-V-I-C-H. All right. I'll definitely have to uh, follow you. And now, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Um. Ooh, uh, okay. So... If you're up to me, we wouldn't separate out our subjects by learning. So I guess in the spirit of that, uh, students would go to school to learn the single subject of like an interdisciplinary project-based studies. How about that? <laughs> Good. First time I've ever had that as an answer. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, I don't think that we're teaching beyond the cognitive skill. I think we need to Maslow, like I said, before we bloom. So kind of stepping back and teaching about classroom culture and teaching those soft skills that are needed in order to thrive in a cognitive environment, I think that's the underpinning we're, we're kind of missing sometimes. What does every child deserve? What does every child deserve? Um, oh, so many things. Um, I would say that in the, in the case that, okay, our kids are with us more than they are in their home, right? Most of the time, like they're with us, what, seven, sometimes 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So I would say they deserve more of a voice and a choice in what they do for the better part of their day. And I think that they deserve our trust, that we believe in them, that they're actually capable of tackling big things. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Biggest challenge, um, I guess, well, speaking from my own experience in the field and kind of my own locale, uh, I would say it's frustration over not really having control, um, not having control or, or even being trusted as the professionals we are, who are closest to the students we teach, uh, to make the right decision for them. I don't think that we always have that voice ourselves. <laughs> What's the best gift to give an educator? Best gift? Well, let's see, there's my green tea matcha from from Starbucks. So maybe a Starbucks gift card, but maybe um, one of those, uh, if I could use a Harry Potter reference, those um, time turners, you know, from Hermione Granger, where we can be in more than one place at once because we have so many hats to wear. That would be a good gift. That would be an excellent (laughs) gift. Which teacher changed your life? 
teacher that changed my life. Oh, God, I have so many. I'm I'm the eternal learner. Um, if I had to pin it all down, I'd probably, probably say my brother. He taught me everything I need to know about grace and gumption. <laughs> and last question, pen or pencil? Pen, definitely pen, because there's very little you can erase in this world. So that'd probably be the tool to teach people that. <laughs> All right, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us and best of luck with everything over at Ed Pioneer. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.